0: When you go to the film, like, our family enjoys going to the film and the theater, and uh, that logo comes up, the production company logo comes up. And it comes with that accompanying score, that massive orchestral hit. My, one of my favorite opening kind of scores for production houses is, is uh, the fox, um, the 20th century fox. And you all know it, right? As soon as, as, soon as you see the spotlight start moving and it's got that... <clears throat> Right? And you're like, yeah! It's about to begin! Right? All you Star Wars nerds, you meaning us, uh, Star Wars nerds, there's that light blue light writing on the screen. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Wait for it. Dun, 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 right, and then the John Williams score comes in, and then all the hair stands up on your arms. Right, and, and then there's a big disturbance in the force, like millions of nerds cry out at once. Wow, you know, Rogue One is here. Okay, that I'm I'm, I'm painting a picture for you because we are going to read today today's text is from John chapter one. It's the first 18 verses, the proto- uh, the, the prologue, the protology, the the, the beginning of all things. And the way in which John has constructed this, the words he's used, the verbs he chose, particular words in the Greek that he could have chose but he didn't and he used other ones instead, the way that he begins the construction that makes you actually think about how the Bible begins and all of these things, it's been crafted together so that it sounds like that's what he's after, that's what he was going for. The other gospel writers, they start in different places because they've got a different purpose. right? Matthew starts with a genealogy. Hey, let me let you all know where Jesus came from. He takes a genealogy. Um, Luke and Mark uh, talk about the, the, the birth narrative and the baptism, and they start taking navigating through Jesus' life, unfolding, who is this Jesus? John does something totally different. John just comes right out in the beginning. as like, here's who he is, and it's just like an orchestral crash on steroids covered in chocolate. He wants it to be massive. John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him not anything that was made would have been made and in him was life and the life was the light of men And his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's word. And John wants to draw us into this huge story, and he comes right up from the beginning, and he says, Jesus Christ was God. And then he explodes it out, and nothing could be clearer than this passage, but nothing could be weightier than this passage. It's a very simple uh, theology, but it's an infinitely profound theology that John gives us. We're going to look at this this morning, this incredible thing. John wants to use this opening movement of like a, grand symphony to draw us in, draw our attention in so that we can see that the immortal became mortal. The Creator put on the clay of his own creation. The scripture affirms Christ's deity and it confirms Christ's humanity, that the eternal Word would be heard through a human voice. And that the same God who thundered on Sinai cried in a manger. John wants us to make that leap. And so here's the sermon in a sentence this morning. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And if you want to know how God feels about you, you look at the cross. Maybe you're here and you're not a person of Christian faith and you're searching, you're seeking, you have questions, you've come, you're exploring, and you say, well, how can it be that You know, how does God feel about me, though? Maybe it's it's just the church and the Christians that get to look at the cross to say, how does God feel about me? I'm saying to you, though, if you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, the way that God feels about you, for you for you to know that, you look at the cross the same way we do. Because Jesus came as the final word, the ultimate word, to convey the ultimate message of how God feels, the creator, about his creation. How does God feel about you? And that's the message. That's what Christ came to not only say, but that's what Christ did, which confirmed uh, what he said. And so, as readers, we're welcomed into, as John opens up his gospel, there's an intellectual journey, and there is a spiritual journey, and there's this life-changing pilgrimage as you go through and you explore who is Jesus and what did he do. And John... Uh, gives his purpose for writing his book this is the spoiler alert for those of you who have never read john because in john chapter 20 he says flat out in verse 31 i'm writing this that you might believe that jesus christ was the son of god and that you might have eternal life john just writes it right out this is why i'm writing this down i'm trying to make a connection of the creator putting on the clay of creation the immortal becoming mortal this is what john is wanting to do but we're going to kind of look at what does this mean and why does it matter for us today. So first of all, John starts out and he says, he uses very intentionally the words, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. All the listeners, the first audience, the first people who ever heard this, they would have heard, in the beginning, and they would have thought of Genesis. Well, there's another book that started that way, in the beginning. And John's doing this on, on purpose because he wants us to start making these huge connections. And it's foreshadowing that the process of creation foreshadows the process of our recreation god created us in grace because he didn't need anything and he's recreated us in grace and he still doesn't need anything but his purpose for creating us in the first place still stands which is what we're about to see and unfold see how good this is see god could have created the world like this and you know let there be everything boom but he didn't there was a process and the first thing that was created was this dark void that was unlivable But then the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters at creation. And then God spoke a word. And as the Spirit was hovering and the word was spoken, God began to create. That's the process of creation. That process is the process of our redemption. We are born dead in sin. But the Holy Spirit begins to hover over our hearts. And as the word of gospel and as Christ is preached, and as that word goes out, there is recreation. Spiritually, in the same way as there was uh, creation. It's a beautiful picture. And so John calls Jesus the Word. Now, why why does he do that? Why does he say the Word? And in fact, it's really unique because none of the other gospel writers refer to Jesus as the Word. And in fact, as John goes throughout his whole gospel, he doesn't use it in the same way as he uses it here in the prologue. So what is he doing? Well, he's got a lot of Greeks listening in, for one. I mean, he's writing to the church, but he's also, he's writing to a Hellenistic world, which means, you know, they're all Greek-speaking. And so he's being pretty evangelistic here. And calling Jesus the Word. what does he do that? Let's, let's kind of unpack this, because it's amazing. He ultimately is saying, because the, word, the uh, word in Greek is logos, which means word, or also means message. And all of the Greeks were, you know, chasing after the logos, the logic, the, ma- the, the meaning, all of these kinds of things. And so John comes out really evangelistically, and he says, the Word is not a principle, it's a person. The word is not logic in and of itself. There's something behind the logic. So go ahead and use your logic and use your intellect and continue on your philosophical pursuits of meaning. But you're going to find behind all of that, there's a person. And it's Jesus Christ. And so John starts to unpack this. I'll I'll share a couple things with you just so you can see how specific he's being. There was a philosopher who lived really uh, four to 500 years before this time. And his name was... Heraclitus, and he was a Greek philosopher, and he used the term logos, the common term logos, as a defining principle. He was saying the logos is what created the cosmos. You know, the logos creates order. Logos is logic. There's a logical reason behind things. So he kind of philosophized in that way. He used the word logos that way. So everybody would have understood, yeah, logos is just kind of this logical, logical word of verbal, you know, putting together your thoughts in a reasonable way, so the Logos, or the message you're conveying, doesn't that make sense? So that's how Heraclitus used the word Logos. But during John's lifetime, there was a, another philosopher named Philo, who was a Jew, and, uh, he, uh, and he used the word Logos to mean, well, God used a process of Logos to create everything. So the Logos was God's process. So even while John was alive and even writing this, a lot of the people who would have been familiar with these philosophies would have been saying, yeah, The logos, the word, is like this orderly process, this kind of divine order to the creation, and they would have kind of seen it that way. So then John goes and he pokes it really, really deeply, and he goes, You know what? Behind all your principles is a person. And behind all of this logic is the logic giver. And behind all of your reasoning, which is good and helpful in so many ways— there's the one that's actually giving you the reason. And so the Christian faith is not a lifetime journey of, in, of acquiring more information about God. The Christian faith is the lifetime of, of going deeper and deeper in our love for the one who's the one giving the information. one informing. And so John pokes really deeply at this. And so he's being really specific. And that's why he says... That's why he starts by saying, In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos created everything... And then as you go through the the prologue, it was, and by the way, the Logos that created everything wasn't a process. It was a person. And he's explicitly trying to help them make the connection. The Creator, God, is the redeeming God. And so he writes it in this way. And the reason why this is so meaningful for us, we say, why is this meaningful for us today? Meaningful, sorry, for us today, is that by saying that the Logos was Jesus... John is saying that what existed for all of time was a person. And so for us as believers today, the joy of the Christian faith, the joy of the Christian life, coming in here week in, week out to rest in his grace, is not an infinite pursuit of eternal principles. It's an infinite pursuit and rest in a person who actually was up to something when he created everything. And now he's redeemed you and I by his great grace, and he's going to bring restoration for a purpose that he had in the beginning. God is not on plan B. Don't think for a moment that what he was up to in the garden, and the devil came in, and the sin of humanity that broke everything, and now we live in a world of brokenness because of our sin, and our world is broken, and our bodies are broken, and we're alienated from God and nature and each other and even ourselves— Don't think that we're now on plan B, and God's like, okay, well, you spoiled everything, so now I'm on plan B. The great truth of the gospel, as C.S. Lewis once eloquently said, is that everything sad is going to become untrue. That He's restoring everything. God is very much on plan A. The grace of Jesus Christ is the good news of the gospel— But even though we live in a world of suffering and sin and brokenness and death, that God is very much on Plan A and is very much restoring Plan A, and you and I have been rescued to Plan A. So John gives us Plan A. So let's continue to kind of look look down at uh, at it, and it's and it's and it's good and it's beautiful because when we say the word today, we often mean the Bible and the scriptures, and which is of course true. That is God's word, but that's not the way that John is using it here. and, and the reason is because the law, God's law, his written word, we have in relation to sin. He gave it in relation to sin. Uh, God's laws in relation to sin weren't before sin, but Christ was. So John's using this like super specifically, and that's why we want to talk about it that way. But the law of God, it governs us externally, but Christ, who is the word of God, he saves us eternally. And now the Holy Spirit in you is changing you, right, in, uh, internally, and it's beautiful. And so... The word of God that's governing our lives and leading our lives, it's changing us in that our decisions can be more wise and we can can be loving, um, but it's not because the word of God is a principle that's informing us though it does it's ultimately because the word of God is a person who's changing us and so you and I can have great hope that even though we struggle in our sin every day, which we do, all of us in here do our great hope is not that if I just had a little more information, you know, I, would, I, would, I would change. Our hope is, you know what? I, I have a person who's changing me. Oh God, let me live to the glory of, of your great grace. And so it's this great claim that Jesus is God that Jesus himself claimed later. You find that in John 5 and in John 19. And that created the huge problem in, in, with the religious leaders. Because you weren't just saying that Jesus was, you know, a prophet pointing to God. Jesus is saying, I am him. And uh, which presents us with a huge uh, dilemma, which is what do you do with Jesus Christ, right? And uh, so perhaps you're here and you're you're saying, yeah, well, you know, I kind of believe that all religions are true. And the problem with all religions being true is that Jesus made some pretty bold claims, which means that all religions can't be true, which means the Christian faith has to either be better better than all the world religions because Christ is actually God, or it's worse than all the religions because Christ said that he was God. He's either the Lord or he's a lunatic or a liar. You know, as, soon, as C.S. Lewis said, he, there's no room to just be like, yeah, I know we're all kind of equal, let's all just get along. We have to either bow our knee to the one who claimed he was God, or we have to just flat out call, him, call his bluff and say you're a lunatic and you weren't God. And the prologue gives us this, the way that John is kind of unpacking it. Uh, philosophically and so uh, of course because of Jesus' claim that he was God and the way that John puts it out here we look at the life of Jesus and we realize uh, two things one is that lunatics don't care for the poor and the outcast and the marginalized that's not what lunatics do and liars don't lay down their lives and die for sinners that's not what liars do so I would provoke you to incur, I would encourage you, if you're here this morning, so what do I believe about Jesus? What do I believe about who He was? Um, to think very deeply about who He was and what he did and, and what he, what he claimed, uh, who he claimed to be. And that's not the behavior of a lunatic or a liar. And that's what I challenge you to, to explore. In verse nine, after John makes this grand claim, John says, "He's the Word. He's the Lagos. He's the, he's the message of God. Not a principle, but a person. After that, in verse 9, he starts introducing this other idea of light. The light came into the world. Now, none of the other gospel writers talked about light. But, again, John starts using this image of light and darkness. Why? Again, he's got a a large uh, Greek audience um, who's also going to be listening in on this. And in ancient philosophies, light and darkness was really prevalent in philosophical thought, much like it is today, right? And so, what John says in verse 9 is that the light, the enlightenment of man, it actually doesn't belong to man. It says that the light is something outside us that comes to us. We can't enlighten ourselves. We're very much in need of great grace. And the good news of the Christian faith is God is a God of great grace, who comes toward us continually in this great grace. And so, the light and darkness were always at odds in the in the Near Eastern world. I'll give you a couple examples. In Persia, you have uh, the god you have the, the god of light and the god of darkness. Uh, I believe my pronunciation won't be good, but Ahuraz Mazda was the god of light, and Ahurman is the god of darkness. They were the opposing deities, right? So these opposing deities of light dark in Persia. In Egyptian theology, you have you have Ray, the great sun god of Egypt, and in Gre- and Greece. You've got Helios, the Greek god of the sun chariot, and even today in, in ancient synagogues you'll see uh, his inscriptions on tiled floors of Helios, you know, the the sun the sun god. So John is saying there's there, this light that you're all interested in, this enlightenment that everybody wants to have. It exists. It's true. Good news. The truth is out there. But it's not yours. You can't enlighten yourself. You actually need to be enlightened. You need this great grace of this light to come to you. And so John pushes the audience further, and he says, Behind the light stands a life. And for us, we're a rationalistic generation, and we find our answers in closed systems of science or analysis or logic or verbal formulas. And so this passage, it provokes all of us as moderns to say, Okay, um... Our ultimate meaning, it's got to be beyond our systems, it's got to be beyond our intellect, it's got to be beyond our philosophical enlightenment, it's got to be in the ultimate source of the universe. It, it's not just being enlightened, it's the one who gives light. It's the one who's giving the enlightenment about truth. And so John keeps pushing and pushing and pushing as he says this. And so what John does is he avoids all the nouns in Greek... For knowledge, he doesn't use any nouns for knowledge, and instead he uses all the verbs for knowing. So instead of it just being a head thing, Christianity is a Christianity is about agreeing with the facts. Do you believe the facts? John pushes further, so he doesn't use any. He very intentionally he's like, I'm not going to use the nouns for knowledge. I'm going to use all the verbs for knowing. So that he explicitly puts faith in Christ in a different category, which is intellectual assent, of course, and the heart. The head and the heart. He puts it in another category. So he uses knowing, this knowledge, in another category of knowing experientially, which is powerful and beautiful, and uses it in that way. And uh, he does this intentionally. Because this concept of light and dark and knowing, and it, he keeps on putting it all through his gospel. And at the height of the, the battle between light and darkness is he uses some disturbing words when Judas goes out to betray Jesus. John writes very intentionally, and it was night. And it was dark. Right? Because John is saying there's a battle, the light and the darkness, and you want to be enlightened, and you want to know what truth is. And he keeps on pointing us to Jesus and his great grace and what Christ had come, come to do. And so he uses those unsettling words. Then when you get to verse 13... You get this huge emphasis in the call to grace alone in Christ. Where John says in verse 13, he goes, it's not, you're not saved by, you're not enlightened because your daddy was enlightened and you're your dad's kid and so now you by blood relation are enlightened. He says it doesn't come that way. And he also says it doesn't come by your will, which is super offensive. It was offensive to the Greeks It was offensive to the Jews, and it's offensive to the Canadians here in Kitchener-Waterloo, saying, hold on a minute, you're erasing my free will. No, 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 listen. The Bible is very clear, in all things earthly, you have free will. I put this shirt on today because I have free will. God did not make me put this shirt on. That's Greek fatalism, okay? So in all things earthly, we have free will. But in all things heavenly, in terms of being saved, we don't have free will. John just said, the light isn't yours, the light comes into the darkness, He's saying it's this is God's grace on display. He comes in and he says that the this, the great word, this great logic, the great message, Christ coming to you. It's not, it's not by blood relation, it's not by the will of man. And he goes and he says that. And why does John do this and provoke and why does that word offend them and offend us? Because it takes away all of our merit badges. It takes away everything that says, well, no, hold on. Paul, you're offending me. You don't understand. I humbled myself, and I prayed a prayer, and I went, and I did this, and then I did that, and then, you know, God saved me. Well, that's nice, but the only reason you were even repenting was because he was drawing you first in his great grace. God moved first. This is the shocking truth of God's great grace, is that he moved first towards you. Apart from your merit, no contribution. Your contribution was your sin, Think, think of who you, you've been over the course of your life. I mean, just think about the, the life that you and I have lived. If I had a line up here that said perfection, none of you in your right minds would stand in that line. And I don't care how much you think you've grown in your Christian faith, you wouldn't stand the line today. I wouldn't stand in it. Christ was the perfection that came in great grace, and he says this great grace, this great light, this great enlightenment, the reason you repented, church— The reason you prayed the prayer, the reason you raised your hand, whatever church context you were in, the reason you went to the front and prayed at the altar and filled out the decision card, or whatever context you came from, the only reason you did any of that was because God in his great grace came to you first. This is his great love. This is the sola fide, faith alone, the sola gratia, grace alone. You know, my Latin's terrible, your Latin is terrible or non-existent, English translation is, All your chips on Jesus. That's the translation of verse 13. He just came, and he saved you. It's a miracle. And we have a hundred different stories in this room this morning of how how we ended up here, of how that light broke into our darkness. And so now we're a witness of that light, just like John was a witness of that light. And we can be confident and humble witnesses of that light. We can be humble because... We, we didn't do anything to deserve that enlightenment. But God, by His great grace, He came. And as the gospel was presented, He freed our wills so that we could actually desire Him. Because if He didn't free our wills to desire Him, we would desire to be our own gods. That's the story from Genesis 1 all the way through. And so God, in His great grace, as the gospel hit your ears, in whatever context it hit your ears in, it freed you to choose Him. And so we can be humble witnesses, but we can also be confident witnesses. Very confident and very bold Because God's light shines through the cracks of his broken church. And then you get to verse 14, and it says that this word that was from the beginning, this great light, Jesus Christ, came and dwelled among us. He uses this word dwelled, which is what God wanted from the beginning. It's the Greek word for tabernacled. There's been a lot of tabernacles all throughout uh, the scriptures. What did God want in the garden? To dwell with man. He didn't need anything, but he created man, and then he dwelled in the garden with man. And then man sinned, and what did God do? He humbles himself inexplicably, and he's in a box behind a curtain in a, in, a, in a transportable tabernacle in the desert, moving around in the dust, surrounded by his dysfunctional family, the twelve tribes of Israel. Why is God doing this? Because he wants to dwell with his kids. It's what he wanted from the beginning. He wanted to dwell in the garden, and now he's dwelling in the wilderness. And then Jesus comes, and what does he do? He wants to dwell. So he's not surrounded by 12 tribes. He's surrounded by 12 disciples who don't get it, who keep messing up, who are sinning, and not understanding what he's come to do. They're not understanding his message. They're not understanding his logos. They're not getting it. But but he wants to dwell, so he's with them. And then he comes to you and I in great grace, and he fills us with his Holy Spirit. And what's he doing? He's dwelling with you. And then this last week, you sinned. Seven for seven. Seven days out of seven, you sinned, and so did I. We failed to live the, 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 the perfection of Christ's life. In our thought, our word, and our deed, a day didn't go by that we didn't judge somebody. We thought we were better than someone. We thought we were worse than someone. Our hearts betrayed us. We, we really, we wandered, we, we loved God, and then we didn't. We worshiped God, and then we didn't. We rested in God's grace, and then we didn't. Uh, we loved our neighbor, but then we didn't. We preferred our spouses, but then we didn't. We loved our children, but then we didn't. I mean, we just sinned. And what does God do? He doesn't abandon you. He doesn't say, that's it, it's all over, forget it. He doesn't say to you, no, downplay your sin and just say, say you're not a sinner. He no, he says, run to my run to my throne room because I want to dwell with you. I'm not running away from the worst version of you. I died for the worst version of you. Don't downplay your sin like you didn't sin, like you're not a sinner. You're a sinner saved by God's amazing grace. You run to his grace because he wants to dwell with you. It's what he's wanted from the beginning. It's it's what's going to happen in the end, in Revelation 21. And the dwelling place with God is with man. We're on plan A, friends. We're on plan A because of God's great Radical grace, Ron Plan A. God has continually moved in grace and love towards his dysfunctional kids. How many of you have kids that have, you know, made mistakes and have sinned and have strayed and have done crazy things? All of us. I have, you have, all of our kids have, right? We're the kids that did that to our parents, and we all have kids that are doing it to us. And you want to know something? You know your kids sin, like I know my kids sin. And so I'll sit down and love my kids through their sin, and, but I'm going to dwell with my kids in their sin. They're never going to cease to be my kids in their sin. But, you know, if, if somebody else comes and goes, like, man, your kid is, like, horrible and wretched, I'm going to be like, what the? I'm like, that's my kid. Don't talk about my kid like that. I mean, I know all these things you're saying are true, but don't talk about my kid. You know, that's how God feels about the accuser of the brethren coming to you and telling you, You know, like, all bets are off. You should get on the treadmill of works and see if you can earn your salvation back because you haven't been doing too hot. And you want to know that the great word of God has a word for the accuser of the brethren in those moments, and it's to shut your mouth. Those are my kids. They're covered in my blood. They're my kids. Some of you have children that you're praying for because, they, that, because presently they're not worshiping Christ. They've been baptized. They've maybe made a profession of faith and they're not in the church right now. And you want to know something? God is so good at saving people. It's his jam. It's what he does. You and I get to rest. We didn't enlighten ourselves. You didn't enlighten yourself. Your kid, who's presently maybe away from the Lord, uh, well, that's not a way, good way of saying it, away from the church, Because the Lord isn't away from them. They didn't enlighten themselves either. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the light came to us in the darkness. And we didn't understand it, but it came. And so we get to rest in that great grace, and we get to pray that great grace for our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids. In verse 17, it says, The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean, and why does that matter? Moses was born when God's people were suffering under Pharaoh, and Jesus was born when God's people were suffering under Herod. Pharaoh killed all of the male children trying to eradicate Moses, and Herod killed all the male children trying to eradicate Jesus, the Deliverer. Moses' mission was to deliver God's children from slavery in Egypt, and Jesus' mission was to deliver all of us from sin and death. Moses was instructed uh, to tell God's children they needed a Passover lamb, Jesus was our Passover lamb. Moses lifted up a bronze uh, serpent in the wilderness when the children of Israel were sick, and everybody who looked on the bronze serpent was healed of their sickness. Jesus Christ was raised on a cross, and all of us who look on Jesus Christ are healed of our sickness of sin and the finality of death itself. Moses was the first mediator between God and man, and Jesus Christ is the final mediator between God and man. Moses gave the Ten Commandments to God's children, and Jesus kept the Ten Commandments for God's children. Moses died on a hill because he couldn't keep the Ten Commandments. Jesus died on a hill because we can't keep the Ten Commandments. The law came through Moses, and grace came through, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the whole prologue concludes with a good word of encouragement. No one through all of history has seen God until now. See, I'm ex- it's called exegeting the scripture. I take the text, and then I go through all of the other texts that affirm this text, and I exegete it for you. I'm showing you from the scripture, not Paul Dunk's interpretation, but what does the scripture say about this text? Jesus exegetes God, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know how God feels about you, you look at the cross. Let's close in prayer.